Christchurch, New Malden, 27th of October 2019, 11 o'clock service. Tim Davis speaking in the series, Romans and the Covenant, The Covenant and Adam. Um, yeah, Romans and the Covenant. We've come to the end of this current part of the preaching program, um, looking at the covenant in Paul's letter to the Roman church. And in this passage, Paul takes us you know, back to the beginning, back to the start, all the way back to Adam. And from a literary point of view, that should be kind of a nice way to wrap things up. Uh, however, I've been assured that, thankfully, we'll be continuing to look at Romans, uh, I think, in the weeks ahead. So don't worry if you think we haven't gotten to the later, more well-known parts of what is considered to be you know, one of the most important theological documents of all time. It's coming soon, I believe. But anyway, the, um, you know, the, as you may have heard earlier in this series, the purpose of Paul's letter to the Romans uh, a significant chunk of it was to address this quarrelling between the different factions of Roman Christians over whether they should continue to observe the law. The Jewish messianic sect were vehement in their belief that there should be a continuity from their Jewish backgrounds and that they should continue to observe the law of Moses. Whereas on the other hand, the recent Gentile converts would question why they should you know, have anything to do at all with the scriptures and the law. It wasn't their religion. And Paul writes as someone in this letter, not just seeking to, but able to bridge the divide between these two positions. And in doing so, he develops a theology, I think, of what you could call universal significance that seeks this kind of middle position between these two views. And then this passage, I think he really lays the foundation uh, for this theme. And so you might want to, if you've got it open in front of you, that passage from uh, Romans 5, uh, verse 11 onwards, uh, you might want to have it open as we spend a short time, and uh, it's not going to be a particularly long talk, but looking at Paul's, what I describe as musings in this passage. Uh, now I say musings because to me, the letters to the Romans, particularly in some of the earlier stages, can sometimes seem, you know, to me certainly, as a collection of musings on different biblical concepts and events. We, such as justification, righteousness, the covenants with Abraham and Moses. And now all of these are connected in Paul's narrative. And for the most part, he skillfully threads them all together through the course of his letter. Um, but also the reason I use that term, um, if the bear, may have, bear with me on this one, but it's because of a certain piece of music, or one of two in fact, which come to mind when I read this passage. Uh, Handel's Messiah now, is best known probably for its hallelujah chorus at the end of part two. Uh, the whole piece of work of the Messiah is structured into three parts. Part one begins with the prophecy of the Messiah and his birth, shows the annunciation to the shepherds as a scene from the Gospel of Luke and reflects the Messiah's deeds here on earth. Part two covers the passion, death, resurrection, ascension, and the latter spreading of the Gospel. And part three concentrates on Paul's teaching of the resurrection of the dead and Christ's glorification in heaven. And the collection of movements in part three, I don't know if you've ever just read through the lyrics collectively in the different parts, the collection of movements, to me it reads rather like a bit of a meditation. Uh, it uses just excerpts, moments from Paul's various writings, particularly um, from, one, from one of his letters, and it makes it sound like the committed musings to me of like a first century theologian. And it's the second movement of part three, which back in the days when I was a chorister, 
uh, would sometimes sing as a standalone anthem as part of the evening service. And this one always comes to mind when I read this passage, in particular its first verse. Since by man came death. Now, those of you who know your musical and biblical crossovers uh, will be aware that since by man came death is not actually quoting from this passage, it's in Romans 5, but from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 to 22. And yet to me, that just shows what an important issue this was. And it wasn't just peculiar to one particular church in the regions, but clearly something that the early church throughout Paul's ministry was struggling with. This tension between the old and the new believers, the Jews who acknowledged Jesus Christ as the Messiah and the Gentile converts. So why is Paul taking us all the way back to Adam? Well, mainly because it's all his fault. Uh, the first couple of verses, if we're looking at this passage, states that sin entered the world through one man, Adam. And all people have sinned because of him. Way to go. But what was this sin? Adam and his wife's sin was to eat the one thing they were told not to eat, the fruit of the tree of knowledge, as this would cause them to know both good and evil, to have knowledge of what is right and what is wrong, and to know of the existence of the tree of life, and that eating from that would give them immortality as God. Adam and his wife were made good, but not perfect in a sense. And I say that only because they had choice and free will. They had the choice to do wrong. And I think when we're comparing ourselves perhaps with these father and mother of all mankind, if you could see them, the key difference I think is that they had a perfect innocence. They did not experience suffering, hardship, anger, bitterness or selfish desires. As the passage says, they were not aware that they were naked and they had no shame. God told them that to eat from this tree would surely result in death. And sure enough, it does. Since by man came death. Uh, the other piece of music, um, well, a musical theme this morning, uh, the other piece of music that comes to mind when I read this passage is the Christmas carol, Adam Leibounden. It's a 15th century piece of text that has been put to music by various people, and one very popular one. Uh, and it's also one of my favourite carols that I used to sing, uh, also when I was a chorister. Uh, and if anyone here is involved in choosing the music for the carol service, I'm putting in a request. Um, but the words to this carol, if anyone's unfamiliar with them, uh, are thus, or the first half of it. Adam lay bounden, bounden in a bond. Four thousand winter, forty not too long. And all was for an apple, an apple that he took, as clerk as Finden, written in their book. The first half of the song, yeah, it's this first half, it's a, a neat little summary of the events of Genesis 3 and their resulting consequences. And it visualizes Adam being bound, held in this kind of limbo for some 4,000 years until the coming of Christ. And his imprisonment in this bond, this limbo, was 
simply because of the apple that he took from Eve and ate of. Uh, when people have provided sort of a critical analysis of this um, cow and the text it came from, it's been suggested that there's perhaps this almost tone of astonishment. You know, it's almost incredulity at the phrase, and all was for an apple. You know, an apple such as a young boy might have stolen from an orchard. One of many, just a simple small thing. And it seems such a little thing to produce such an overwhelming consequence. And yet so it must be, because the clerks say so. It's written in their book. And this is most likely referring to clerics, who would have been one of the few people at that time this is written, who had been able to read the Bible and had access to biblical books. But I also like the image that I get when I think about clerks finding their book. It's perhaps referring to accounting clerks who made a note of the crime of Adam. They chalked it up in their ledger. One forbidden apple eaten. The account of man's sin recorded in their book and of which he must be held to account. A debt would be necessary to be paid for this crime. The balance sheet was in the negative. And I find this links nicely to the introduction of the law that Paul refers to. Paul says, as we continue the verses, that the law was basically brought to show the extent of human sin. And whilst it could be argued that, you know, from a legalistic point of view, that a person couldn't be convicted of a crime they did not know they were committing, and so perhaps from before the time of Moses, when the law was brought about, people could say, I didn't know it was wrong to not murder, like to murder somebody. No. It didn't make any difference to the fact that a person was still a sinner. Because as it says in verse 14... From the time of Adam, death reigned. People still died as per God's punishment for sinning when he banished Adam and his wife from the garden. We hear in the following accounts of Cain killing Abel, the sense of sin on him. But if that's Adam's punishment, why are we also condemned with him? Uh, the American pastor and theologian, Warren uh, Wearsby, uh, who actually died earlier this year, uh, he suggests that it's because we, mankind, are somehow all racially united to Adam. And so this justifies God's punishing all because of Adam's sin. Now, I have to say, I don't actually find that reason particularly helpful or clear. But I do get that perhaps as descendants of Adam, God's created beings, and that we are, like Adam, creating God's image, that perhaps we share the same qualities and flaws that cause us to sin, because it's perhaps sadly human nature. John Wesley offered the view that when it says all have sinned in verse 12, it's referring to all of us have sinned individually. It wasn't just that one person sinned and therefore we are all classed as sinners, but that actually we are aware 
that we sin. When Adam sinned, sin entered the human race and corrupted this human nature. And Wesley understood this sin to be actual sin and its consequence, a sinful nature. This corrupted human nature inherited from Adam, causing all men and women to sin individually. And in the context of verse 14, between Adam and Moses, all men and women sinned individually. When there is no law, sin is not easily recognized, perhaps. Yet the death of all men since Adam demonstrates that all are being punished for sinning, as God said would be. Genesis 3 shows that humans were aware of doing wrong once they ate of the tree of knowledge. They knew that they were naked and they'd done something wrong and they felt ashamed. We cannot claim ignorance of what is right and wrong. We have no innocence as there was in the garden. We have awareness. We are capable of feeling shame, sympathy, sorrow, joy, jealousy, anger, desire, and capable of conscientiously understanding the effects our actions can have on others. We can sin and be aware of it. And the wages of sin, as Paul goes on to tell us in chapter 6, is death. Paul's reason for this particular, what I'd class as amusing, is to show the different factions in the Roman church that the focus of their faith should be taking its reference point, not from only the Mosaic or Abrahamic covenants, nor that there is nothing to be concerned about in the past, but it's about the fact that before all of this, there existed a huge problem that needed to be addressed. One man's act led to all men and women's sinful nature and punishment of death. And so God decides to act. And fortunately, Paul's letter gets a bit more positive again. Uh, there's a wonderful use of words and phrases by Paul in the next sen uh, section. And he particularly stresses three words and phrases. Uh, don't try and count it now, because it's easy to get distracted. But the word one is used about 11 times when referring to either Adam or Christ. One. And the key here is our identification with them both. One man. One redeemer. But it also underscores the enormity of what God did. One act resulted in condemnation for all. And one act resulted in justification and life for all. The word reign is used five times, I think. And Paul sees two figures as duality, the comparison, Adam and Christ, each of them reigning over their own kingdom. Adam was given dominion over the old creation. He sinned and he lost his kingdom. Because of, Mad of Adam's sin, all mankind is under condemnation and death, and Christ comes as the king over a new creation. 
Uh, those of you who are fans of Handel's Messiah will, I'm sure, already be mentally twitching with the words of the second part of the Hallelujah Chorus. The kingdom of this world is become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And this is not actually quoting Paul, but a passage from Revelation, but which still provides this nice connection, this link to a passage that amplifies a lot of Paul's themes in this letter and others. And one final thing to note is that the phrase, much more, is also repeated five times. Just to show that in Jesus Christ, we have gained much more than we ever lost in Adam. As Matthew Henry puts it, there is a much greater power in the second Adam, Jesus Christ, to make us happy than there was in the first to make us miserable. Christ gives us so much more. By his obedience on the cross, Christ brought in righteousness and justification. Jesus not only undid all the damage that Adam's sin affected, but he accomplished much more by making us the very children of God. Some of this much more, uh, Paul explains in the previous section that Becky spoke about last week. In Romans 5, it, it densely but quite deftly outlines, like 1 Corinthians 15, the way in which the obedience of one man, Jesus the Messiah, has more than reversed the effects of the one man, Adam. One man paid the price once and for all, for all. He has done, it seems, what the covenant was put in place to do. And so we ask ourselves, what has happened to the old covenant, the one which the Messianic Jews were so keen to cling to, the laws of Moses and Abraham? Well, there's this theme in Paul's letter to the Romans. All means all. It's the sense to get again and again. All have sinned. All were affected by sin in the world. All have been offered justification and eternal life to be made righteous along with Christ. And this is the crux of the new covenant and which Paul is laying out in his letter to bring about this theology of universal significance in order to appeal to both the Jewish and Gentile believers. The new covenant is a new relationship between God and humans with Christ as our mediator and which includes all people, both Jews and Gentiles, who declare their belief in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Saviour. The new covenant also breaks that generational curse of inherent, inherited sin on all descendants of Adam if they affirm that Christ is Lord. Their sins are forgiven. It's not universalism. It's not guaranteed salvation for everyone, regardless, but it's a guaranteed offer of salvation. The hard work done by God. The only covenant that matters, is, says Paul, 
is this new covenant. Since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. The words to that 46th movement of Handel's Messiah are those of Paul. Words of hope and triumph. Unfortunately, the words to the remainder of Adam Lady Bounden are full-on Roman Catholic and about how fortunate it was that Adam did sin because otherwise Mary wouldn't have been able to give birth to Christ and become Queen of Heaven. Not quite as helpful as Paul's words. I'm now considering withdrawing my cow service request. Um, but we get to the shift in Paul's letter to the Romans with the focus on what it means to now be alive in Christ, to live through the Spirit, so much of this passage sets up the content of the next few chapters. There is freedom in Christ. We are free, free to live life by the Spirit, God's Holy Spirit in our lives, rather than simply be yoked to sin in the world. That's the promise of the new covenant and one which we all get to participate in and enjoy. This may be the end of this section, and period of our preaching program. But thankfully there is still so much more to come and learn from in the following chapters of this exceptional letter. Looking forward to it.